Hello, you are listening to DCD, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of constitutions and public participation and making them. It is produced by Democratic Constitutional Design, a research project located at the University of Iceland. So, we are sitting here uh, with Larry Lessig, Jón Olafsson and Sævar Finnbogason. Uh, we have been talking about uh, constitutions and constitutional politics uh, uh, in the first segment of this discussion. But now uh, uh, we would like to turn more to the work you have been doing most recently, Larry. You just published a book uh, entitled They Don't Represent Us. So what is, the, what is your main idea with that book? Well, so... The obvious sense in which the title, they don't represent us, is understood is they referring to the government. Mm -hmm. And the government doesn't represent us in all sorts of ways in America because of the flawed institutions of democracy that we have evolved. So the one that's most grotesque, in my view, is the way we fund campaigns leading members of Congress and the president to be obsessively focused on the interest of a tiny, tiny fraction of America that funds the campaigns. But in addition to funding of campaigns, the Electoral College is structured in a way that makes the presidential candidates focus on a subset of America that's not even representative of America. The way gerrymandering draws the House of Representatives focuses members of Congress on the extremists in their party as opposed to the ordinary people in their districts. And the way that administrators administrating the vote tilt the opportunity to vote against people who are not in their own party creates an unequal opportunity to participate, even the act of voting. So these things all together mean the government that's produced through this process of democracy is not a representative government. But the second part of the book, which is in some sense, I think, the harder and more fundamental point is to say they don't represent us and we don't represent us. The way that we, the people, get represented inside of our democratic processes, typically through um, polling, uh, Mm -hmm. but not just, represents a, a, a version of us which is uninformed, unreflective, unrepresentative, and in many cases just embarrassing. And to the extent the people are framed as this kind of embarrassing, ignorant mass in the middle of democracy, it reinforces the views of people who are increasingly skeptical about democracy. So part of the second part of the book is really thinking about why it is we are not representative of us and what institutions could help bring the people back into the democracy in a way that we would all be proud to uh, be associated with them. So I mean, it's one of the one of the issues that uh, some political theorists have been very interested in recent years is this um, worry about ignorance or even stupidity of the people. So so you put this in a in a in a more polite way, talking about the the, the less good versions of ourselves versus the the better versions of ourselves, maybe the, the, the better angels of our nature, to, to use Stephen Pinker's word. So how do we, um, how do we help uh, the better versions of us actually to, 
be democratically active? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize how unfairly we are rendered now relative to other government officials. So, you know, in the tradition of Republican thought, citizenship is a public office. All right, so how are other public officers represented? So if you're a judge, um, you know, if you walked up to a Supreme Court justice and you quizzed them about admiralty law, a Supreme Court justice would be perfectly entitled to say, look, I'm not going to answer a quiz about admiralty law. If you want to get a question answered about admiralty law, get a case. Then write some briefs, and we'll have an argument, and then we'll write an opinion. So there's a process, and then we have to pass through that process before we speak as a court, or even a jury. You know, you can't sort of walk into a jury deliberation halfway through and pull the jury and say, I know what the jury thinks. The jury only speaks at the end of an incredibly well choreographed process where they have information presented to them. They've had a chance to deliberate about it. Certain facts have been excluded completely because they are not probative or they're, um, or they're highly inflammatory. And then at the end of that process, they speak and they say guilty or not guilty or they say something about what the sentence is supposed to be. Presidents of the United States, it's hard to remember but because of the current president, but before the, president, the current president, presidents don't just blather. They don't just tweet public policy. What the presidents do is reflect through a staff-driven process about what the position of the president should be on question X, Y, or Z, and then they present it in a way that expresses the conclusion of that process. The point is, in each of these contexts, public officials speak at the end of a process that is well-regulated and supported by staff. Okay, how about we the people? How do we speak? Well, you know, pollster calls you up, middle of dinner, and says, what do you think about thorium reactors? You know, and most people have no clue about thorium reactors. This is a quiz, a pop quiz. Mm. And they give their view based on, you know, in America, whether Fox News is in favor of it or Fox uh, News is yeah. against it. And that view then gets represented as the view of Americans. And, and then that's taken to have some democratic authority. Mm. And my view is it's obviously unfair to compare the view of we the people presented and created in that way against the views of Congress or the president or the judges or juries in pr presented the way they do it. And then instead of um, trying to evaluate whether we the people are smart or not based on that, we should at least create processes where the people can speak uh, as well as they can possibly speak. And so, you know, Jan, you and I have been talking about this for many years, but because we have a common interest in those processes, but processes like deliberative polling, where you have a random representative sample of the public who's been exposed to both sides of an issue. Those sides have been uh, vetted in ways that uh, both uh, political sides are okay with, and then they've had a chance to deliberate, and you watch the evolution of their thinking across that deliberation. That process I think, brings out the best of who we are. Just like staff-driven decisions by the President of the United States bring out the best of who that President's going to be. And we at least should insist on that before we step back and say, well, the people are stupid, the people are ignorant. So, so there is a sense in which this whole, I mean, this is, has become a genre within political theory, this mountain of literature about the ignorance of, of the vo average voter. Um, so what you are basically saying is that people need to have special circumstances enabled to um, 
to be able to you know think through these issues and and make informed um, decisions or, or or informed votes on these matters. Uh, but in your lecture, your your lecture yesterday here in Iceland, you were talking about um, how the people are becoming more and more polarized, or yeah. or you used the word fragmented. So. So there seems to be a sense in which, uh, on the one hand, uh, people are, uh, the information people uh, have is is more fragmented, so that people are less likely to have the whole picture, so they will do even worse in these sort of standard and unfair um, polls that are done that show the people as ignorant, but also that they are, in a way, more ignorant because they are locked in this fragmented media reality that you describe. And could you say a few things about that? Right. I think the first point is to be very clear about how correctly you've used the word ignorant here. Yeah. There's a very important difference between ignorant and stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, ignorant people are people who just don't know something about a subject matter. So I am, you are very lucky because you are interviewing one of the very rare white males over 50 in America who knows nothing about football, right? Nothing. You don't? Right? No, no. I mean, American football. I, I think I know <laughs> yeah. more about soccer than I do, you know, what you call football than I do American football. I am blissfully ignorant about mm. that. Now, I don't believe I couldn't study it. I don't believe I couldn't like sit down and, and read stuff about it and watch games and, and begin to think about the statistics. I, I don't believe I'm incapable of that. I just don't want to mm. do that. I have other things I want to do. So I'm blissfully ignorant. And if you asked me a question about American football, you should understand my answer would be totally Mm -hmm. ill-informed. But that doesn't, I hope, say anything about my potential as a conversant about football if, in in fact, I decided to to focus on it. So Mm -hmm. you're right. We are ignorant. We are not stupid. And so then the question is, recognizing that ignorance, what should we do to correct for it before we ask the people to speak about some matter. Now, you're right, in my lecture, I was trying to say that the problem of ignorance is greater today than it was during the height of what we could call broadcast democracy. Mm -hmm. In the days when the news was on, everybody saw the news because there was nothing else to watch, and the news covered issues with a neutral point of view, tried to cover uh, cover it in Mm -hmm. a way that conveyed information that wasn't designed to become polarizing or fragmented. Um, I think the default wasn't great, but it was better than it was today Mm -hmm. because you weren't invested in ignorance. You weren't invested in believing the opposite from what the other side believes. But today, you know, people live in these tribal media environments. And Mm -hmm. what tribalism in the media environment means is that they not only are given one side of the story and believe it, they become really good at filtering out the other side of the story. Um, So one of the uh, studies I talked about yesterday was a study trying to measure how um, anti-vax or pro-vax facts would affect people who are anti-vaxxers or Mm pro-vaxxers. And and what the study was able to demonstrate is that people are really good at filtering anything that does not conform to their prejudice. And so they're not affected by throwing a bunch of facts at them that are contrary to what they believe. And so that means we have a more difficult problem today to correct for ignorance, properly understood, 
than we might have in 1970. But in either case, I would say we should not just take the people as we find them. We should take the people and understand what they know and how they know it, and then complement it before we say what should we do as a yeah, And things are even stranger than that, according to what you said yesterday, because um, even highly intelligent people yes. and, and academics uh, they don't do any better. Uh, no, they do in worse. This sense. They yeah. do worse, right. Because what it is to be intelligent <laughs> is to have marshaled the skill to be able to deflect any mm. fact that you don't want to accept. Like you can, you know, smart people in global warming debates are very good at denying global mm. warming facts. Um, if that's their political preference to do so. So this is not about smart versus stupid people. Mm -hmm. It's about environments for information. And we just need to be uh, you know, aware of the consequence of those environments and complement for them. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you just need to know this other stuff before you're going to give us a view. And, and that's the important stuff to, to provide. Maybe just to talk a little bit more about uh, deliberative polling or about many publics in, in general. You, you, you mentioned deliberate polls, which is uh, um, a method that has been developed by James Fiskin at Stanford, and a method that we have been using here in Iceland uh, in the past few months uh, to, um, to get uh, uh, public input into the current constitutional process. And basically what we do is that we conduct an original survey about the issues in the constitutions, constitution that are up for revision. Uh, and then uh, everybody who participates in the survey is then invited to join uh, a meeting for two days where these issues are discussed in more detail. Some experts are invited to answer questions that people may have. And as it, uh, as it played out here, we had uh, around 2,500 people who actually participated in the poll. That was, uh, I guess, around 50% of the, of the sample. Um, and around 10% of those who participated, they accepted invita an invitation to join the meeting and participated in that. So, so the idea is that you have, on the one hand, um, certain participation. It is not an open participation, but it's a randomly se selected group of people, so that in some sense everyone has equal chance of, of being invited. But there is also the idea that you get results that are statistically significant, that you can actually measure, in some sense, uh, the way that uh, views uh, change or, or don't change uh, during this process. So, so when you when you talk about deliberative polling, are you specifically thinking about this method, or are you in general thinking about a variety of ways we may have to invite people randomly sampled or even crowdsource issues uh, that that then feed into public policy? Well, I mean, I've been a fan of Fishkin's work for a long time. Um, I think every one of my books, the first was published 20 years ago, has invoked Fishkin in mm. uh, the remedy section for how we get to where we need to go. But I don't think we should close off um, experimentation around ways to bring people into understanding around issues and deliberation around issues. Um, there are, you know, in... Uh, Taiwan is a project called Polis, P-O-L.I-S, which is developing an extremely interesting way of facilitating conversations among very different types of people that enables uh, 
consensus uh, understanding more than uh, amplifying radical disagreement between them. So there's a process for bringing people to consensus, which um, is not what deliberative polling is about. Deliberative polling, in fact, forbids intermediate polls to be taken. You can't sort of ask how many people agree with this and how many people don't. Um, but it has a different objective. It's about trying to knit together communities. And I think what we need right now is an open set of experimentation, uh, attitude of experimentation for complementing the democratic processes which we're all familiar with to give us a better way of knitting together the people in a democratic process. So in America, in my book, I, I say, yes, we should launch a process. There should be an institution that enables Congress or the president to commission a deliberative poll. And that poll would be conducted simultaneously in five parts of the country. And it would, you know, I, I'm very generous and like, making sure we pay people enough so that everybody can participate. Um, and But they're not optionally allowed to participate. They're basically drafted to service, just like you might be drafted mm -hmm. to be sent to war. And, uh, and that process should provide a result, which I think if you had five of them and they all came to the same result would, would be quite compelling, um, that would be important and valuable in the political process. So that's one addition to the kind of messed up system we have right now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we should like think of silver bullets here or mm -hmm. imagine other mini public techniques don't have uh, complementary values. But what do you think um, is more important, all things considered, the, the epistemic value of doing experimentation of this sort, the epistemic value of these processes, or the solidarity value, the, the way you bring people together? I think um, the epistemic is more important here, mm -hmm. um, you know, because I think that these should be framed as questions of truth. Like, what is the truth to the question to the uh, to that matter? Um, do people believe X or do they believe Y? And um, politicians should be in the business of trying to build social movements around truth. Um, and and so, I, so the thing that's important to me is the epistemic, even though I would love to see lots of other processes out there that might better enable solidarity. I mean, I'm not against, obviously, uh -huh. solidarity. But what attracts me to Jim's work, the Fishkin's work, is, you know, it's, it's commitment to assuring the right kind of uh, random representative group. It's commitment to assuring um, that the information that's presented to them um, has been vetted in a process that gives us confidence that it is, in some sense, unbiased. Mm -hmm. And and those two things, in addition to the statistical sampling uh, um, uh, disciplines, um, mm -hmm. you give us some reason to believe now we're really understanding something of what the public believes. And when you stand that up against normal polling, the real difference is just the information. Because normal polling is also supposed to be statistically uh, representative and, and randomly selected. Um, mm -hmm. It turns out it's harder and harder to do that these days because the number of people who respond to polls is like tiny compared to where it was 50 years ago. But So that takes a lot of work to get that to a statistically rigorous standard. But you're rigorously representing ignorant people. And again, I get in a lot of trouble if you know that were taken out of context, but <laughs> ignorant in the sense that they're just not necessarily informed about yeah, the yeah, issue yeah. at stake. Yeah. Um, and Jim Fishkin says we're going to statistically 
properly represent a bunch of people who, whether or not they were ignorant before this started, mm -hmm. at least have had the opportunity to understand mm -hmm. the facts and deliberate about them, mm -hmm. and and that should be more valuable. And to of us. course, of course, it's one thing to be able to Google something, and uh, and a totally different thing to be uh, uh, having thought through the issues, uh, as as we've been talking about here. But uh, but I noticed that you use the word truth, which yeah. is. Uh, you know, it's it's a very tricky word in in the context of politics here, because uh, you know what is truth in politics? Is well, is there any truth? How, there's plenty we, of truth. Yeah. There's plenty of truth. Um, you know, climate change is happening. That's a true mm. statement. Humans are responsible. That's a true statement. Mm. Um, you know, there are lots of statements that are not true or false, like. You know, society should e have equal wealth for all members of society. There's some people who believe that, some other people that don't. So I'm not saying that everything is about truth or falsity, mm -hmm. but I think we should not be shy about you know beginning to say this category of statements so is true or false, and um, and you know guide our process of deliberation in that direction, without getting troubled or tripped up by these kind of philosophical questions about what truth is. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean. I mean, I spent many years as a philosopher, like I was going to be a PhD in philosophy, like this was very important to me at a certain stage, but I feel like I, you know, got, I, I cured myself of that disease, <laughs> I moved beyond it. Um, and we can get back to like dealing with the world the way ordinary people, you know, deal with the world. And that's, I think, enough for yeah, it's good enough for government work. But but anyway, uh, there are still. I mean, if if we believe that people are equal and um, people should have equal say, um, they should have equal rights to have their voices heard and influence the political process. Um, there are actually a lot of people out there who believe that uh, you know climate change isn't real. It isn't you know, it's not uh, human activity that is causing. Um, yep all these problems so uh, you know for these people they they would just say well you know Larry Lessig has the wrong idea he's just I, I, <laughs> I'm sure I have a yeah. wrong idea about a whole bunch of things I think are <laughs> yeah. true or false and so I'm not condemning anybody for disagreeing mm. but I'm saying that the discourse has got to uh, has got to be open mm -hmm to being able to say of certain claims, these are true and those are not true. Mm -hmm. And if you disagree with us or me about that, then let's let's discuss it. Let's mm -hmm. like talk about why you disagree about it. But I think that's what politics has got to be about. It's got to be more than just, here's what I feel and here's what you feel. Because mm -hmm. those things, you know, there's no metric of truth about that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's got to be about, and how do we deal practically in the world, given the practical constraints mm -hmm. and problems that we can Yeah, so referring to what we were talking about earlier about this fragmentation, um, yeah. you know, a lot of this has to do with the internet, obviously, and how, how we, uh, how communication has changed over, I mean, it, and it's happened incredibly quickly. Yeah. Uh, we're just sort of standing in the middle of a hurricane and, and we haven't really seen the wreckage yet, yeah. you know. So, uh, it seems to me that, uh, what you're saying then is that that we need special we need special tools to sort of force people out of this fragmented reality. Uh, uh, that that seems to be 
So that's that sounds horrible. Tools to force people, you know, any yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that <laughs> is, is not a is not a likely sentence to convince. No, I don't think it's so much about tools. I, I, or I just procedures, think it's about, probably. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's more about like just recognizing mm. where we can engage in democratic thought well, mm. and where can we not engage with democratic thought well. Mm. So I would say, I would much rather people think about political issues through podcasts yeah. than that they would think th about political issues on Twitter. Because I think of thinking about political issues in podcasts, listening to a conservative podcast, liberal podcast, political scientist podcasts, you know, activist podcasts, just thinking in, you know, chunks of time um, at a human scale, where it's like 30 minutes or an hour. I was on the Joe Rogan podcast. We went for two and a half hours, right? Yeah. And his data show that people listen to the end of his two and a half hour podcast. Like he's the number one podcast in the world. Millions of people listen to the end of his two and a half hour podcast. The point is, as humans, this is what we do well. We can talk to each other uh -huh. and people can listen to conversations. And that's what they're, as humans, like evolved to be able to do. What we're not able to do well is to like summarize in a hundred and well, how many we're up to? Two hundred and forty characters. These I don't know, two hundred and eighty, whatever um, ideas that are substantive and and actually inform, as opposed to just poke or to anger or to rally. Um, and and so I just think we need to say where's it good to do politics and where's it good not to do politics, and and I think more politics in places like this um, would be better uh, in and more polling in places like digital, like a, like deliberative polling would be better. And that's the most we can do, point in the direction of which would be a better environment to do politics than what we have right now. So so the environment is crucial yes. for for at least hoping to get closer to the truth and having people, you know, for people to change their minds. Yeah, because here's the kind of climate change I yeah. think there's no disagreement about. The climate of the intensity of the anger of people in politics towards each other mm. has gotten hotter. Nobody's going to argue about that. <laughs> like whether the earth is getting hotter or not, we know this is true. And and I think we can't, we, we've got to accept that the infrastructure for communications has got to be part of the reason for that. Mm -hmm. um, and the internet, you know, bears a huge burden in this, not the internet in an abstract sense. But the particular version of the internet we've developed, which has social media platforms driven by advertising as its business model, mm -hmm. that's the mix that I think produces this poisonous um, soup. I'm tempted to, to end our discussion today with a different question. Uh, when you were here in, in 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, and that made many people, including you, uh, upset. But one of the things you did was to uh, argue and to some extent campaign uh, to, uh, 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 well, to tell the, uh, those who were uh, part of the Electoral College um, that they should not necessarily vote for Trump when the Electoral College met. Of course, I know many people were quite upset with, with that idea. But now, uh, three years later, how do you see that campaign? Well, in fact, um, last week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case to address the question whether electors, in fact, have a constitutional freedom to vote their conscience. And, um, and so we will, I will make that argument to the Supreme Court at the end of April, and they will decide by June 
whether electors are free. Um, and I think, you know, you can never be certain, but I think it's pretty clear that this court is going to say electors are constitutionally free. And historically, we've always had these moments where the results are in some sense inconsistent with what we believe the democracy is asking for and people arguing that therefore the electors should vote contrary to what they are charged with with, um, to, with voting for. This happened the very first time we had a contested election. 1796, Samuel Miles was selected as a elector who was supposed to vote for John Adams. But it was pretty clear that Thomas Jefferson actually had won in the district that he was elected. It's just the vote count had not been done quickly enough. So Samuel Miles was convinced to vote contrary to how he was pledged because he believed that's actually what represented the view of the people in Pennsylvania more. And when he did that, there's a very famous response, which was, I didn't select Samuel Miles for the purpose of thinking. I selected Samuel Miles for the purpose of acting, namely to vote for John Adams. Um, and from that moment, that's been the question. Have electors been free to vote their, as they're pledged, or are they free to vote their conscience? Um, in 2000, George Bush, was the Bushies thought that George Bush would win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College. Obviously, the other happened the other way. But when they thought this, they started floating the argument, even before the election, that the electors should vote for the winner of the popular vote. That's just the end. And of course, that's the argument we were trying to make in 2016. When we tried to make that argument, many people said, they're not free. They have to vote. The law says they have to vote for the winner of the popular vote in our state. And so we began that fight then. We'll resolve it by June. And, uh, and then I think the question for America is, do you want a system like this mm -hmm. to select your president? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Because even though in particular moments, I believe it's t perfectly right for these electors to vote contrary to how they are pledged, um, I'm not sure I like a system where one or two people switching their minds mm -hmm. could flip the election. Mm -hmm. Because like in 2000, if two electors had voted contrary to their pledge, George Bush would not have been elected and Al Gore would have been elected. Now, you could look at that and say, oh my God, imagine what the world would be like. If Al Gore had been elected, there wouldn't have been an Iraq war. Um, there probably would have been climate change legislation adopted by the United States. Um, like the whole world would be a completely different world right now. So that would have been an extraordinarily good thing. But on the other hand, I think there would have been a revolution mm -hmm. if people switched their vote. Mm -hmm. and and um, Al Gore was selected over, um, over George Bush. So I think it's important to clarify what the rule is, which is why we brought this case. I think the rule will be, as we said, electors are free, then we'll have to decide whether we should change that rule through a constitutional amendment. But this is a very interesting inst democratic institution, the Electoral College, and it seems to, uh, you know, make real somehow the the aristocratic nature of representative electoral democracy that uh, that we have today i mean this is like a, a filter well if the people vote you know uh, in in certain ways which you know then then the electoral college i mean if these people are free to um, change their uh, you know, votes from what seem they seem to be pledged to vote for, then they can obviously, you know, turn elections like you were saying, um, in favor of you know the uh, conventional yeah. wisdom, you know, 
ignoring the yeah. popular will and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I think we should be more forgiving of the framers' design of the Electoral College mm -hmm. because at the time um, they were solving uh, for a very difficult problem. The question is who would pick the president? Mm -hmm. Some people thought Congress should pick the president. Some people thought the state legislatures should pick the president. Some people thought the people should pick the president. Mm -hmm. And Congress pretty quick, the framers quickly decided Congress shouldn't pick the president because the president should be independent of Congress. State legislatures should not pick the president because the president should be independent of the state legislatures. But the people weren't technically in, an, in a place where they could pick the president because in a country where it would take four months to get information from one end of the country to another, how are you going to run a national campaign for the president? And so, and so that's why they created this weird institution yeah. that was independent of Congress, independent of the state legislatures, but could then decide based on their own judgment including the judgment of what the people wanted as evinced through elections. Mm -hmm. And in the first couple of elections, many states, you know, even if they held a vote, just allocated their electors however they wanted. Like, you know, people mm -hmm. could go one way, but the electors would go a different way. And what we've evolved to is a world where the presumption is the electors will follow the results mm -hmm. of their state. But the question is where that presumption is resisted by, you know, the fact that the winner of the popular vote would not be chosen by the Electoral College, should the electors be free? Mm -hmm. And whether you think they should in theory or not, I think we'll see the Supreme Court say they are in fact free under the design the framers gave us. So we'll wait for that decision in June. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun to talk. You have been listening to DCD, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of constitutions and public participation in making them. This is produced by Democratic Constitutional Design, a research project located at the University of Iceland. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're going to join us again in our next podcast.